Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Hello, Russ. Today, I don't see any additional artwork today. That's that's you haven't made any new artwork in the next last couple of days, so that's good. Or yeah, not, yeah. It, it comes, the, come, it's like inspiration. It comes in waves. It comes in waves. Good. And how is it in Austin? I assume it's still warmer than it is in Knoxville. Yeah, yeah, probably. About 60 degrees here or so. Feeling oh, pretty good. Well, yeah, we're breaking 40. Nice. Fahrenheit for those people who don't live in a Fahrenheit world. Sorry. <laughs> I've done the conversion. It's still warmer than where I am. And here it's the last three days of spring. And it's kind of, what? What? I feel cheated. So that voice in the background there was Jeff Houston. <laughs> where are you, Jeff? Morning all, afternoon all. Hi. <laughs> are you in are you in Australia today? Or are you yeah, no, no, I, I, I was in London for the IETF and, and in Brussels for another meeting and came back on the weekend uh, together with a massive amount of Antarctic air that sort of strayed up north because, you know, it can. And all of a sudden it's back to the depths of winter. Kind of, I'm not sure I have enough clothes anymore. I'm wearing <laughs> everything I own. <laughs> uh, I did at least get my Christmas decorations up, you notice. Well, at least the ones in my office. I didn't get I didn't get the ones up in my in the rest of my house, but I at least got Snoopy has a cool hat. That's important for Christmas. Quite right. Yeah. Quite right, yes. So today we are talking about going dark and encryption and cybersecurity issues. So I don't know, Jeff. I mean, this is this is a huge topic. And I know that we just did something on um, we just did an MTIM workshop with the IB about measurement against encryption and how encryption is impacting network measurement or or not, as the case might be, and how you can deal with things. So, I mean, what's your what's your thoughts on this? Where where do you come from on this whole argument between or this whole discussion between encryption and network management? Or do you think there's a middle way? Oh, um, I'm going to go back into the effort in the 1980s. Before most of our listeners were alive, yes. Those of our listeners who were alive, and, and I was certainly not part of any particular design effort, but I did live through some of the so-called protocol wars where, you know, a whole set of vendors had actually done their own various sort of proprietary network protocols. And the issue was this was not a protocol to run on a network. It was a network. And so this whole idea that you could kind of separate out various parts of these transactions and hide them from the network didn't seem to make an awful lot of logical sense. So are we talking about level network type things or what are we are we talking about like uh, tour like things? Are we talking about overblaze or are we talking about actual network protocols that people put together and ran? We're actually talking about network protocols that people put together. Things like TCP, IP. Things like, interestingly, FTP or SMTP. Um, the underlying assumption was that 
the agency or entity that was running the computers was actually the same agency, entity, campus, whatever, that was running the network. And it was kind of, why would one party withhold information from itself? And, and so when you look at these protocols, it seems so quaint through modern eyes that the control stream in, say, uh, the email protocol, SMTP, uses English words. It's weird that the HTTP protocol uses GET, G-E-T, and PUT, and they don't use some weird binary encoding. It's English. And the whole idea was that the network and the application and, and all, all that ran sort of inside it and with it was all part of the one managed domain. And, and this entire concept that one needed to occlude information within that single domain seemed, well, stupid. It didn't make any sense. And in fact, it was the opposite. It was, in fact, a troubleshooting thing, right? People wanted oh, to, that was, to yeah. yeah. They wanted to be able to take their packet capture, put it on the wire, pull it up on screen, and say, oh, I can read what this is doing. I can English read what this is go doing. Hence the beginning of HTML markup language concepts and using markup-like structures in protocols rather than just like TLVs, like go one step farther. Now, now well, this was kind of a, a bit of a reaction um, to the creeping fundamentalism of um, ASN1 and other forms of automated languages. And, and it was kind of a battle at the time, and it's probably still a battle now if you think about JSON and various forms of data description languages, that the work in the internet project at the time was kind of anti all that obscure obfuscation and simply creating sort of another layer of abstraction for its own sake. You know, if I'm doing a get, let's just call it the word get and put the arguments after it and, and finish the command with an ordinary carriage return. So that if I really felt like it, I could send all this networking stuff to the printer. And oddly enough, the printer would tell me exactly what the network did. It was a cut through, and it was a cut through that made everybody's life easier. Because I don't know about you, but I never write perfect code. Um, and I've spent, you know, many, many years writing really shocking code, and I'm not the only one out there. And, and so this whole effort of what happened, why did it happen, what's going on, is the question that everybody asks in networking terms all of the time. Yeah. And, and so there was this idea that, that the network and its applications were all part of a single security domain, right? And it wasn't something that was kind of invented. It was just really the fact um, that these networks and the computers and the applications were actually all part of the one single thing. Oddly enough, went a little further than that. And, and I got my first taste for this, actually, when I started working for the telephone company here in Australia. Any public communication service that was digital required, well, to put it bluntly, a tap point. That the, the local, the local you know, plot, the local, local police force could come along with a duly executed warrant and basically listen to parts of the network, they could get a feed. And as the telco, that was our obligation and duty. And so in some ways, this was 
wasn't exactly a secret, but it wasn't broadcast either, part and parcel of taking these corporate and campus networks and pushing them out into the public domain, the price of being a public communications network was that you had to give law enforcement under the you know various warrants or whatever they had access to what was going on in the network. That was your obligation. Simple. And that started to change at some point, right? By the way, that world was a more interesting world in many ways because the presumption of trust was so great. It was insane. I mean, we had Tempest computers and we had Stu 3s and, and Stu 2s and stuff that we sent things encrypted. But we just assumed that the network was like totally wide open. If you if you want if you want security, you better stick a KG84 or, or Stu 3 on the end of that line and encrypt the traffic with military grade hard encryption with rotating keys. And you cannot assume that the network is anything, even, even in Nippernet, even in the red network side of the US military, there was no presumption. So we, we we had at the time, and I'll stay around the 80s, we had two kinds of gear. There was Tempest-rated gear, and there were various countries and agencies that had access to Tempest-rated gear and folk who you know specialized in making it, whose outlook was. I wouldn't necessarily say paranoid, but maybe it was, and, and rightly so. Nothing was exposed in any way, shape, or form. Great. That was their job. And as a customer, if you wanted that and had the right licenses, whatever, you paid for it. Everyone else was actually on a different track. And that track was actually one where the network itself operated in the public space, but did not expose its doings to anyone other than the network and the various law agencies that had a warrant, the circle of trust. And so whether it was voice calls or data streams didn't really matter. Inside the telephone operations, inside, you know, where I was working, you couldn't tell anyone if you heard anything on the network under pain of being sent off to prison. It was part of the Data Communications Act. And Australia was not alone in this. Networks, in order to operate efficiently, did not require this huge imposition and cost of encryption, because it was expensive and very limited, they operated efficiently out in the open. But that open was only open to the telephone company. And as I said, folk who came along with warrants in their hand. And so it was sort of a cozy circle of trust in some ways. And we designed our applications with the same idea in mind. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so so when would you say that started to change, or are you still getting there? I think the first change is when we started mucking around with a protocol that actually never took off, IPsec, because we were told, um, and I suspect actually, I suspect the real thing that made it blindingly obvious that we'd made a mistake was the introduction of Wi-Fi. I don't know about you, but I certainly remember going to some conferences in Wow, you're going to test me. Um, Mid-90s, I'm going to say 1997. And at the end of the meeting, someone got up and said, here's all the Wi-Fi passwords. Sorry, here's all the usernames and passwords I snarfed just by listening on the Wi-Fi. Yeah. And it was kind of, what? You mean to say Telnet's rubbish? And the answer is, if you're going to use Wi-Fi anywhere, it's rubbish because anyone can hear it. Yeah. Now, this was a bit of an eye-opener to the technologists because you can't seal up Wi-Fi easily. 
right? So the whole idea was, well, hang on a second, we're going about this all wrong. If you're going to start pushing your traffic over open radio, you must assume that there are lots of listeners, not just your intended target. And it's a case that you have to now do a little bit of what Tempest was trying to do, make sure that you scramble the bits that only one person heard it. Yeah. And, you know, that was where all this came along. Now, there are a number of other factors flying around in the late 90s, but I think Wi-Fi was the one that pushed us over the edge that said, you know, Telnet's wrong. You really should be doing secure sockets. You really should be doing the SSH protocol. You really should be a little better than this. Now, in that room of geeks, we all got it. In the product that was sold out there in the retail stores, nobody got it. This stuff was still wide open. And I suppose even more of a concern, and it is a dramatic concern, is that in the infrastructure of the internet, the domain name system, no one was listening. Nobody listened. And it was kind of, meh, don't care. Yeah. Well, to some degree, the protocols were designed in a world not to be secure, number one. And part of this, too, by the way, was that bandwidth became free. I well remember when OSPF was being standardized and when I was looking at Banyan Vines versus Novell Netware versus TCP IP. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Which one to run in a military network? One of the biggest issues that we always ran into was which protocol uses more bandwidth? the protocol itself, what's the good put of the protocol versus the the overhead? And when bandwidth became free, that was no longer an issue. And so we just started stuffing whatever we wanted to in the packets and not much caring. And then we saw that as a boon, like you said, because now I can print it out. Now I can see. So so we we actually started to get to I suppose protocols that made extravagant use of the bit, the bits available, you know, and they actually didn't bother compressing the data. I'm like, really, why bother? There was so much bandwidth. We actually designed protocols that were loose, promiscuous, um, and we started to sacrifice almost everything to that single remaining deity of speed. And the DNS is a, is a classic example of here is a relatively lightweight, efficient protocol. It's astonishing in its brevity in one respect. It's fast. But in every other respect, it's pretty horrible. You know, it's unencrypted. It's open. Anyone can listen in. You know, the whole thing was sort of, you designed this why? Well, to be fast. Any other design parameter? Not really. No. And as I suppose the the wake-up started to happen with folk publishing other people's passwords. Uh, But equally, I think, around the late 90s, the toxic environment that was the internet became horrendously obvious. You know, up until then, these people were just misguided youths who who were, you know, learning the tricks of the trade and, and were sort of being slightly naughty in the process. By that period, this was not innocent playtime. This was, you know, the shadowings of, of, of criminal activity, the shadowings of organised crime, and even more darkly, um, the shadowings of nation states getting involved. We didn't really have an inkling 
um, of how dark this would get at the time, you know, certainly those shadows were there. And the reaction was to start sharpening things up. At the same time, Netscape had a problem. They desperately wanted to be more than a video clip, you know, platform. They desperately wanted to be more than playtime. And, and what you really, really needed was to be able to buy and sell over the net. You really needed to have online banking. You really needed to have some kind of fidelity in transactions that even if they occurred over Wi-Fi, and they were going to occur over Wi-Fi, you, your password you know, and account numbers were public knowledge the next microsecond later, that you needed to create channels across the internet where the end user application, the browser, Netscape, and the thing that was taking your money, um, the shopping site, the server end, were actually able to conduct that transaction in secret. And that was actually the, the beginnings of the web PKI, the certificate framework, and you know the real use of secure sockets, making an encrypted end-to-end -end conversation that allowed you to you know, exchange a secret that any eavesdropper would be none the wiser. And you're talking about a lot about Wi-Fi here, but I can also well remember working for companies where I would do pen testing as it was at the time. We wouldn't have called it that then. And I would walk into the op to the lobby, which was publicly accessible, find an Ethernet jack and jack in and put a, put a sniffer on the wire. And bada bing, I had access to internal servers. Yes, you could actually just listen promiscuously and, and and all of a sudden there were no secrets anymore. Yeah. Now folk were concerned, but not concerned enough. Because even then, encryption, security costs a massive amount of money. Your machines need to be bigger. You know, you can't just run some 10-year-old laptop you found from the rubbish tin, you know, recycle it, dust it off, latest version of the Windows, and off we go, Yahoo, we're there. No, you actually needed some grunt because decent encryption needed decent computing and stuff was starting to get expensive. And so for many folk, it was sort of, well, that's a problem for everyone else. I have no secrets. I don't care. And, and so we kind that's of... That's the biggest lie in all of security right there. Oh, totally. But, you know, the industry was busy saying that to itself while it continuously pushed out product that didn't have decent security frameworks inside it and applications that simply ran in the open. And the more we did this and the more we went tut, tut, tut when someone became a victim of all of this, but it was never really enough to push the entire effort over to the sort of other side, over to a view that this was just way too lax, way too naive, and it assumed the good intentions of too many folk, improperly so, right? Yeah, yeah. And as a matter of fact, you talk about hardware. There was a time when I was in Cisco TAC that we set up a, I don't remember what size box it was. I think it was a 7200, which was, by the way, a smoking hot machine. For those who don't know what a Cisco 7200 was, it was a fast machine in terms of speed. And we said, okay, we're going to throw as much traffic at we, as we can at it, and let's see what happens. And we threw encrypted, just MD5 signature stuff in there, which did not was not valid. 
right? We just threw invalid MD5 signature traffic on a BGP session, and we could roll the box with like 10,000 packets per second or something. Totally stupid. Like anything could generate the level of traffic needed to roll a 7200. And that was the fastest processor that we had in the stable at the time. Right, because as soon as you encrypt traffic, the other end that's receiving this, the first thing it does in order to figure out what it should do is to decrypt it. And, the you know, the attacker says, oh, so, okay, I just send you random bits and you cycle your CPU trying to make sense? The answer is yes. <laughs> wow, you really, <laughs> we really have got that right, haven't you? Here's some <laughs> random bits. Go enjoy yourself. And, you know, for that reason too, there was this strong reluctance of going, what am I trying to cure What's the risk? What's the threat? And what's the cost of, of, you know, the cure for this? And and more to the point, am I creating another point of vulnerability when I do this? And so even today, a whole bunch of BGP sessions still occur in the open because, oh, networks are secure and no one's looking. But I think the real issue is because we really haven't got good answers to what do you do when someone is sending you random bits and you're desperately trying to decrypt them you know, you're exposing your processes to denial of service. And so for a long time, this whole encryption thing was actually a debate, not an imperative. And I suppose the next thing to understand um, is that, and this is a worry to everyone who's ever thought that they were involved in the internet governance debate, there is none. (laughs) None. Let's just understand this, and I'll say it again, nobody, literally nobody is in charge. No one can tell you what to do. Every consumer spends their own money any way they want, and the entire industry is just sitting there playing this chase-the-rabbit game of trying to get there in front of the consumer with a product. That's it. There is no governance. And so if it's you go... It's all an attention market, as Zuboff says, and yeah, yeah that's, that's it. what it is. Yeah. That's all it is. So if consumers don't value encryption, well, guess what? It ain't going to happen. And and it's really an unequal debate in so many ways because when you say consumers don't value encryption, that's true. It's the same way that I'm trying to think of a suitably esoteric, oh, um, consumers don't really value the the Large Hadron Collider and its discovery of the Higgs boson or whatever. They don't. If this was a market, we never would have built it, you know, because in some ways, you're trying to make consumers aware of this huge sort of semi-hidden body of data that says you've got a problem. And at the same time, getting to appreciate that and make spending decisions based on perception of risk. We're lousy at risk. Neither of you live in California, which is a good thing. <laughs> 40 million of them do. And, you know, I'm not telling anyone a secret there's a quake coming. There's going to be a huge one because it's geology. Why are you living there? Well, because it's not going to happen tomorrow. Probably right, but it is going to happen. And that's this whole issue of risk. It's so easy to defer risk. And in the world of encryption, I have to spend money to encrypt for a potential problem. Yeah, right. Talk to me tomorrow. Yeah, talk to me when the problem and, happens. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me when the problem happens. And so for many years, the whole security thing just fluffed along as, um, oh, 
Mrs. Beaton's good housekeeping guide? It was Miss Manners. You must write security considerations in your protocol design. You can't okay. just say, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about them. Yeah, you have I, to say, I, I thought I, about them, didn't use was, any. Yeah, all those ever said was, <laughs> this document does not change anything about current security considerations. Next. That's all they Next. ever said. Right. It's, it's sort of, yes, there are security considerations. Go figure. We're not going to bother. And, and it was kind of, this was good enough because, like I said, consumers didn't value it, product out the door and all that, and, and nobody cared. But part of the issue was that a number of folk were just open season. Now, you mentioned um, the surveillance economy, and yes, you know, Google got there, the entire advertising industry got there and very quickly realised that this was the new gold mine and just opened up the tunnels and opened up the mining. Fantastic. Veins of gold. Your entire future life was mapped out in the advertiser's eyes and there was nothing you could do about it. So much data was being captured. But then a number of national agencies of many governments looked at what was happening in the private world with envy. But they were national agencies. And so, oh, we can't do that isn't something you say. It's we can't afford to do that, maybe. But if you want to do it, you're the agency, sovereign governments and all that, go do it. And, and so a number of agencies, the US and others, kind of said, oh, you mean we can? All it takes is to tap a wire or two? Absolutely. Well, they've been doing this forever. Do you remember the rollout of GSM in mobile phones? Yeah. It was delayed It was delayed in Australia by a month or two to allow the spy agencies access to the crypto codes to break the secure, supposed encrypted conversations on GSM. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and this, this is just normal. There's nothing unusual about this. And so for some reason, this was both a widely known fact that folk were looking, and a widely ignored fact. And, and I think it was kind of, yeah, we know you're doing it, but, you know, don't say it out loud. Just don't annoy us with it, and we'll conveniently ignore that you're doing it, and you go do what you need to do. Which was all good and fine until the WikiLeaks culture started to take over. There was a certain amount of distrust in what was going on, uh, made, I suppose, exacerbated by some secrets that got out that maybe shouldn't have. And then all of a sudden, Edward Snowden came out with a bevy of papers that said the US, because that was the papers he was collecting from, has spent a huge amount of resources in a massive program of looking over everybody's shoulder all of the time. What do you mean? Well, it's just computers. It's easy. It's not a particularly big challenge. And, and you know, it would have been a headline for a week or two, except that the dear old IETF, which has always been a bit libertarian in its views, got wind of this and decided to beat themselves into a hefty fervour, into a massive froth of, of, of outrage. How dare you do what we knew you were doing anyway? Um, and if I sound <laughs> cynical, yes, I am. Um, because I think in some ways it was indeed false outrage. It was a convenient platform for folks, some folk in the IETF, to actually, you know, take a front into this. This was not without its history. There were a number of times in developments of protocols where the various agencies 
wanted to actually put points of surveillance in. You might remember one around um, voice over IP and core management and so on, where the FBI certainly had a view on how that protocol should work. And the IETF went a long way down a very tortured debate about whether it should accede to this and put in tap points or whether it would say, no, we refuse. Because the pragmatic view was it was always going to happen, always going to happen. If you standardised it, at least, you know, it would be interoperable. There'd be knowing what was going on. We'd all be able, you know, vendors would be able to build product and the folk doing the tapping would do it, you know, more cost efficiently than everyone doing it in their own weird and wonderful way. And, and so this kind of debate, should we, shouldn't we, had, had sort of appeared in the IETF about every four or five years for some time. Tortured because, as I said, libertarian, slightly leftist view from the IETF, because, you know, young techs, and this seemed like a moral affront. How dare we make protocols that spy on our users was one view. The other view was, look, we're an industry. We survive on money. If folk want this and are willing to pay for it, it gets built. Do we build it or does someone else build it? Nah. You know, so that was the tenor of the debate up until 2013 when the amount of fervour that got created on the Snowden revelations was extreme. I think a lot of people were very, very surprised at the Snowden revelations. Um, they kind of knew it was going on, but they didn't know the extent or the depth or the level. Uh, maybe people did, but I was working for a company that was, uh, you know, was quite surprised that their network had been tapped and stuff came out from Snowden that was internal stuff inside of a company's network. And they were like, wait, 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 wait. This is inside our data center. Like somebody physically put an optical tap inside. This is the only way to get, that this could have happened. And like people were like, no, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> but at the same time, Russ, you're getting surprisingly accurate ads <laughs> splashed at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And sometimes Target knows when your kids are pregnant before you do. No, all of that. And it's kind of, these are really, really accurate ads. How do they know that? And and then, you know, human nature and all that, you sort of sit there and go, ah, oh, right, right, next web page, I don't care. And so the signs were there. And that's why I think in some ways the, the outrage was, was, was a false sense of outrage insofar as if you'd thought about it for a second or two, there is no doubt that what the commercial entities were able to do a lot and what national agencies with relatively hefty budgets were able to do about the same, you know, was not a surprise. It was it was always there, right? But I suppose it just landed on an idle month at the IETF. There was nothing much going on, you know. <laughs> what do we talk about at the next yeah. meeting? I know, pervasive monitoring. Bang, the proverbial hits the fan and off we go. And and what became a sort of minor kerfuffle, oh, you're doing what Google does, you're doing what everyone else does, you're looking at us, becomes this is pervasive monitoring and it's attack on, on the integrity of society and it's up to the IETF to defend humanity at large. And I'm not joking. It was couched in those extreme yeah, those, those precise provocative terms. terms. Monitoring is an attack. That's the way, right. that's what the language, I mean, that's what it says. 
And, and what it was actually doing was driving a wedge where none existed. It was driving a wedge between one class of applications and network transactions that operated, I suppose, let's call it end-to-end, over the top, and the underlying network fabric and infrastructure and saying, we're going to create a barrier between the two. We're going to freeze the network out. The amount of information a network operator will have about the the traffic they're carrying will be as close as possible to zero. Now, we'd never gone that far. What we'd done before was to say, oh, I'm running a browser, da-da-da-da-da, I need to access my bank. Woohoo! let's bring up a secure session just for this part. You know, click, bang, wallop, locked in place. Yes, let's go, tappity-tappity-tap, all done, let's tear it all down. And now we've got, well, I don't care what you're doing, what everything you're doing is now effectively invisible to the network. We're going to isolate the lot. Now, that's a big step, but nevertheless, it was taken up with enthusiasm. Yeah, I I just want to point out here that there's more than just the Snowden revelations going on here, right? There's also net neutrality that plays into this, regardless of your opinion of net neutrality, but at least some companies have, on occasion, I'm trying to be very kind and not call people out and, you know, have used net neutrality as a way to, as a, as a competitive lever, shall we say, saying, I can have the data because it's good for me, but you can't have the data because that's good for me. There are companies who have tried to make net neutrality into a heads I win, tails you lose situation. And so that, that, that is true. I think that also plays into part of what we saw happen at the ITF. Well, I think it was actually an interesting economic change that actually fostered this attitudinal change. You see, by that time, 2010 or so, as you'd pointed out, bandwidth was in excess, in abundance. Totally free. So all of a sudden, the job of provisioning networks was not golden anymore. Folk doing carriage didn't have gold-plated taps in their bathrooms anymore. This was a relatively mean commodity business with slim margins. They were being cut out. The money had moved, and the money had actually moved up the protocol stack. The new darlings were, of course, you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon and, and so on. The new darlings were actually applications. The stock market showed it. All of those big, you know, booming companies weren't putting wire in the ground. And so they felt, if you will, that they had all the power. The network folk wanted their money. And, you know, as Dick Turpin found out 500 years ago, the best way to do this is highway robbery. You get there and say, look, nice traffic you've got here going down my network. How about you pay me or I kill it? And that that kind of crude form of extortion was certainly evident. And, you know, with the rise of various forms of streamers, it's actually even evident today that the network folk feel that they've been cut out of the application economy and they're trying desperately hard to peek over the shoulder, look at the traffic and go, you know, 
if you want that particular traffic to get through my toll gate, you're going to have to pay more than normal because I know it's valuable traffic. And so that landed at a convenient point when the ITF was going, yeah, 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 networks should not be able to see what applications are doing. And the application folk went, you know, I happen to agree with you and let me throw my support in with you. Let's shut networks out because they're being pesky, they're being a pain, they're demanding money, you know, it's extortion, let's lock them out completely. And, and so a convenience of factors sort of came along and said, let's drive this. So step one, does anyone ever go to port 80 anymore? I thought everything was port 80. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think there were any other ports available. I thought everything. That's right. Yeah, no, no. Chrome, my latest version of Chrome just won't do it. This site doesn't have security. This doesn't run SSL. You know, you're not doing HTTPS. I'm going to go not going there. What do you mean not going there? You're a browser. I said I'm not going there. If if it's not encrypted end-to-end, it's not going to be me that does it. Wow. And and the other browsers, because once Chrome does it, 80% 80% of the market's now doing it, and the remaining sort of marginal browsers who have marginal market share really haven't got a choice. So all of the web traffic, which is massive, is now secured. All of it, every last little bit, is now basically sealed off and away. But, you know, we didn't stop there. We then started to look at the domain name system because everything you do starts with a call on resolve this domain name. Right. Everything. Every right. ad, every browser, every everything. And, it, and it, it's certainly true. If I saw your DNS requests, and no, I don't want to see them. I just do not. <laughs> you have no secrets from me anymore. None. It's yes. the metadata from heaven. It's <laughs> You don't need anything else. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.